California, there's a certain place where there's about a mile of stockyards. Any of you know what I'm talking about? I mean, and there's certain times of the year, it's filled with cattle. I mean, it's just wall-to-wall cattle. And if the wind is right, you would know it in the dark. Because it just about gags you. It's so bad. And you just like, it hits you like a wall. And it's really funny, if you're on that stretch of freeway and there's a lot of cars, everybody speeds up. I mean, it's like, and you don't have to worry about it because there's no police. I mean, they're not there, so, you know, they could pick off a hundred cars going way over the speed limit. You just want to get through it. This passage of Scripture is kind of like that. You just want to get through it because it's unpleasant. And I'm just kind of, because as you read through Revelation, we're told that the world is going to face some terrible plagues and judgments and tribulation that culminates in something we call the Great Tribulation. And it forces us to face the, the problem of evil and suffering and pain. It's the hellfire and damnation part of the Bible message. And one of the reasons Revelation is hard to deal with is because it's filled with these, these, you know, graphic, horrible, painful, deadly plagues. And you don't know what to do with them. And we literally want to avoid it, like the plague. I mean, really. <laughs> it's, it's the, you know. So let me give you a quick overview. The plagues start back in actually chapter 6 and 7 with the seven seals, initiating one of the first cycles of judgment and tribulation. And these plagues affect a fourth of mankind. In chapter 6, you know, you have the, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In chapter 6, there's a great earthquake. The sun turns black. The moon turns blood red. The stars fall to the sky, uh, fall to the earth. The, the sky recedes like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island is removed from its place. And that's just the first round. Okay, oh man. Another round of plagues picks up in chapters 8 and 11 with seven trumpets. There's four environmental disasters including another, maybe the same, darkening of the sun, moon, and stars, but it's followed up by three woes, a spearheaded, you know, spearheaded by satanic forces which inflict misery upon mankind. And these, uh, these plagues affect a third of mankind. Okay? The ultimate, the ultimate round of plagues picks up in chapters 15 and 16 is the final outpouring of the judgment of the seven bowls of wrath. Oh, joy. And so let's take a look at this. Are you ready? All right. We start in verse 1 of chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And then I heard an angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were and are the only one, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints, the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. I guess global warming is going to be a thing. Okay, just joking there. And uh, there, see, there, 
There's, there, and they were seared with intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of, of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness and men gnawed in their tongues, gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they'd done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of the Almighty. We're going to talk about that big battle in a future message. And, uh, but, but the plagues go on. And it's kind of disturbing. Christian author Annie Dillard captures, I think, many people's response in, in, in a book on where she deals with this. And she ranks this as the biggest theological question of all time as you read this. And her question is this. What the Sam Hill is going on here? <laughs> That's really what she says. And you, know, you go, what is going on? This doesn't, you know, we teach love and gospel. And man, this is harsh stuff. And uh, the thing is, and, and this is the reality we have to face. We live in a real world with real trouble, with real sin, with real bad stuff going on. And it's in real denial. And it's, it's just, it's, it's reality. And we don't like to face the reality. It's like, a, it's like an addict not wanting to face that they are addicted and are destroying their lives. And God is telling us in the book of Revelation, it's the world. We are all doing this. And it's interesting, and it's important to note, that in, these, in this last round of plagues, this is not just a fourth of the world or a third of the world. In the bowls of wrath... It's the whole world. It's everywhere. It's global. And, you know, now let me clarify that all these plagues and judgments, they're open to all kinds of speculative interpretation that we're never really going to, you know, figure out. It's difficult to tell the exact events that are, you know, meant to represent. It's hard to correlate them with historical events. But I got to tell you, and most of us don't know this because we're not history buffs, but if you go back in history, you can find some historical events that align with some of these horrible plagues. There's some horrible stuff that's happened in human history that when you read it and look at Revelation, you go, man, this has happened. However, the events described in, in this chapter are so cataclysmic, it's hard to just relegate everything to the past. There's some stuff that, you know, it looks like some of this stuff is in our future. And we kind of sense that, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. We think it's bad now, you know. And so the plagues force us to deal with the issue of evil and suffering and pain. And uh, the plagues force us to address a few critical questions that I just want to try to, you know, deal with today, today's message. Question number one, how can a loving God permit all this evil, pain, and suffering. Man, this is not a new question. Many people have used it, uh, the reality of pain and suffering and evil as an argument against God, which to me is just plain silliness. It's ridiculous. Okay, it's, it's, as, it's, it's as if we're thinking, if there's a God, his reason for existence is so that we could leave a, lead a pain-free, comfortable life. 
Okay? I mean, if, if God exists, I shouldn't be experiencing any hardship or any pain. I'm not sure where they got the reasoning because there's no logic to it at all. Okay? And so we deal with that. Uh, you know, is God totally committed to our comfort and convenience? No, but he is committed to our growth. He wants us to have life. And he also wants us to have free choice and free will. And he loves us so much and respects us so much that he's not going to take that away from us no matter how much we destroy ourselves. I mean, it, it is what it is. But there's a deeper uh, irrationality to this. One of my seminary professors, Dr. James Strauss, would always, he liked to point this out about the irrationality of denying God on the basis of suffering. He would simply ask, how does that help how does it help to deny God in the face of suffering? And, you know, we do that. Stuff happens to us. I mean, oh, God, you know. It's, it's like we shake our little fists at him and say, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. <laughs> Take that. Because he's not doing life the way we want him to do. And, and in the meantime, we're cutting ourselves off from the only hope of help in the face of our suffering. Because you take God out of the picture, so what do you got left? It's just, it's just kind of doesn't make sense. Because no matter what happens, those of us who believe, we've got God. God doesn't promise to take the pain away or keep us from pain, but he promises to be with us and help us endure through whatever in this life. And we also know that we're not meant to live in this world, that there's another world that we're meant to live in, and this is just preparation for the real deal. But, you know... When we deny God because of his pain, it's just childish immaturity throwing a temper tantrum. And in, verse six, in chapter 16, verses 10, 11, it makes it clear. Men nod their tongues in agony and curse the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they'd done. And we forget that, you know, God allows us to experience the consequences of our choices. God uses what we call love and logic parenting. And he just says, all right, that's how it is. It's, it's funny how in prisons, many criminals think they're unjustly treated. If you talk to them, they'll say, I'm a victim of the system. I'm a victim. These people shouldn't have done this to me. It's amazing the victim thinking you'll find in people who've done atrocious crimes. And they, if you listen to them, they will, they'll paint a story where, man, I'm the guy who's been perpetrated on. And it's just not reality. In fact, I think if God were not to allow hardship and suffering and pain to happen, that would be a real cause to deny God. I mean, how would God be a loving God if he sat back and didn't try to intervene in some way? The fact of the matter is, the world is full of pain and suffering, not because of God, but because of man. I think C.S. Lewis is right on when he says in the end, there's going to be two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right, have it your own way. That's kind of, that's kind of it. God is not a cosmic codependent. Enabling us to do whatever we want to destroy ourselves. That's not just, that's not the God we worship. And, uh, you know, he's not willing to enable a sick, dying, violent, perverted world to maintain its descent into hell without letting it experience the consequences of its action so that we can turn around 
and do something different. Tribulation is the direct result of our choices, not God's. But God attempts to bring us back. So we could spend sermon series on this, but that kind of gives you an idea. Why is there tribulation? That's why. But question number two goes a little further. And this speaks more, I I relate to this one. Am I going to have to go through the tribulation? A lot of people are asking, you know, the Bible describes this stuff. Am I going to have to go through that? Is there a way I can avoid it? And uh, one of the more popular teachings on end times is the idea that in the end, there's going to be this great period of tribulation. Okay, in fact, some think there's going to be a literal seven-year period of untold, unprecedented tribulation. And they get that out of the book of Daniel. I'm not going to get into it, but it's common. And it could happen. I'm not saying it's not. Okay, so we have that. And, but along with this, we also have another biblical teaching called the rapture. How many of you heard the rapture? Okay, and the word rapture literally means caught up. It's the idea that at some time in the future, all Christians who are still alive, who haven't died, are going to be caught up with Jesus at the end times because something has to happen. And so, and there's passages that support this. First, for instance, First uh, Thessalonians four seventeen. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. First Corinthians fifteen says this. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, we will not all die. But we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Both those passages speak of some event in the future where, you know, those who are living are going to experience this. And we call it the rapture. And it's going to happen. But many Christians hope that the rapture is going to occur before the Great Tribulation. And I hope they're right. I mean, I, I really don't want to be around when the seven bowls of judgment are poured out upon the world. I mean, it's like, take me now, Jesus. And, and we have that. But understand this. That's not the only way to interpret that. There are many biblical scholars who don't think it's going to be that way. There are many Christian scholars who think the tribulation is going to be a part of our Christian experience. There's some people think not only that we're going to go through the great tribulation, there are many who think we're in the great tribulation now, that it's already begun. And I don't know. I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. Let's get practical here. This is the practical guide to the book of Revelation. I hate to break it to you. There is no way to avoid pain, suffering, evil, and tribulation in this life. Every Christian is going to go through hard times, pain and suffering. I don't care who you are or how blessed you are. In fact, you know, some of the more blessed go through it the worst. It's something we just have to be prepared to face. And uh, I don't want to get my hopes up and think I'm going to miss it. And then at the last minute, find out I'm going to have to go through some stuff and not be prepared. I mean, you know, and the rest of the Bible is pretty clear. We're going to go have, to, have to go through hard times. Jesus says this in John 16. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. He tells us outright, we're going to go through it. But he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And that's the same message we receive in Revelation. It gives us this stuff, but then the Revelation comes around and says, 
Never fear, you who are believers, followers of Jesus, you will triumph, you will overcome. Just continue to trust God like we just heard. And, and that's what we have to do in the face of suffering. That said, many of us would still like to avoid it, right? No problem. But this does raise the third and final question. So what's the purpose? Why? Why do we need to face tribulation anyway? Well, to begin with, hardship, suffering, and it purifies us. It reminds us. Back in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, it's talking about Christians here. And the angel says, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And what that verse pictures for us is it's, it's, we're coming out of a refining process where we are made white, we're purified, we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so God allows hardship to come so that we can draw close to Jesus and be purified and be washed and be made new. James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. I'm still working on the joy piece. But consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance, uh, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay? But hardship and suffering does something else that's really important. It amplifies and empowers our witness in a dark world. Just as, whilst Christians seem to be spared from some of the tribulation and revelation, it's clear that we're going to go through some. And another thing that hardship does is it proves our faith to a dying world. When we go through suffering like Christians, like followers of Jesus, it shows people that we are the real deal, okay? That our talk is in our walk. A lot of Christians are what I call greenhouse Christians. Many Christians are, they're okay, as long as they're in a perfect environment. And they can talk, I mean, they look good. But as soon as things get hard, it all goes away. God has not called us to be greenhouse Christians, Okay, he's called us to be genuine, and unfortunately, that requires us hardship. And I got to tell you, a lot of Christians try to form the church a greenhouse. They want the church to be a place of comfort and pleasure, and where we can go and have our spiritual tummies filled. And you know, that's not why we're here, folks. We're not here for our enjoyment or pleasure. We are here because we have a mission, and Revelation tells us what it is, and that's to be a light in the darkness. So we, this is training camp. This is boot camp. So I'm not always here to make you feel good. I don't feel I hate my messages sometimes. I got, geez. Dang. By the way, you need to know this. When I preach stuff, like, on patience, guess what God does to me the week before? Like, Lori, just, no doubt. If I preach on anger, he just gives me all sorts of reasons that I have to face it. And so that's what this is about. So stop trying to make this church into something that makes you happy. This is about experiencing God, reflecting Christ, and hardship does that. First Peter chapter 1. 
He says in this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And he says it plainly. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see that word revealed? Do you know what the Greek word for revealed is? Apocalypsis. That sound familiar? That's where we get our word apocalypse. And you see, we will, we're going to be shining in bright lights when that happens because we're going to be on the right side of the apocalypse. The real point of Revelation is not to prepare us to leave, it's to prepare us to stay and endure when times get tough. I don't want to think I'm going to be airlifted out and find out it's not true. But I got to tell you, there's been a few times, a lot of times I've said, Lord, take me now. Have any of you had that prayer? Has he taken you out? I'm still here. Apparently he thinks I need to go through whatever I'm going through. And I'm glad because he's never, ever failed me, even when I've been on the floor, right? And... uh, Again, it's learning to trust. What's interesting about this whole thing is that non-believers see the writing on the wall. Non-believers understand that tribulation is coming. They know it. And uh, I I came across this fact, you know, uh, I was just doing some study, and I was reminded that back in 2017, the New Yorker published an article on how over 50% of the wealthy tech executives and entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley are heavily investing in what they call apocalypse insurance. And what apocalypse insurance is, is they're creating bunkers, survival places, stockpiling. They have locations in other parts of the world where they can go at a heartbeat and endure the apocalypse. 50%, it's a thing. They know it's coming. Here are people who have more knowledge of accurate data about the direction of our civilization. They know the collapse is coming, and they're preparing for it. That makes you kind of think twice, and it's not just the rich. Back in 2012, National Geographic Channel produced a reality TV series called The Doomsday Preppers. I never saw this. I didn't know this existed. The show profiled people preparing for the end of the world by stockpiling food, water, and weapons, and whatever else they might need. At the end of the first season, it was the most viewed channel in the history of National Geographic. But I got to tell you, without God, you can hide and stockpile all you want. There is no preparation. Just saying. However, there is a way for believers to prepare. And I'm going to close with this illustration. Because it's so accurate. The book of Revelation is like a childbirth class. How many of you have taken a childbirth class? I know most, a lot of you have. Okay. I remember going through a childbirth class with Lisa with our first son, Joshua. And I learned a lot. Talk about major TMI. <laughs> stuff I didn't want to know, stuff I didn't want to see. And like, you know, 
I got, and it, but it helped me a lot get through Lisa's having our baby. I think it helped her too. But uh, uh, I, I, I was a mess. I needed it. And uh, the, first, the, cl- the first thing the class taught us was to know what to expect. And they explained to us half the battle is just knowing. So you're not taken by surprise. You don't panic. If you know it's coming, you, you kind of be prepared for it, of how the pains come and how it goes, and this is what's going to happen. And it just, just knowing stuff is coming, you may not know the details, but it just prepares you, knowing what to expect. And that's what, you know, Peter says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. So we're just prepared. Okay. Second, the class taught us how to breathe. Okay, I didn't breathe too well when we had Joshua. In fact, when Joshua was at the end there, the nurse looked at me and says, Mr. Marshall, do you need to sit down? She had to help me sit down because I became this close to just on the floor. I really, I, she, Lisa was fine. I think she had to she had to coach me. No, it was like pretty bad. And so, but I made it through. I did better the second one. First Peter 5 7 says, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So I believe in something called spiritual breathing. And spiritual breathing is when we cast all our anxiety, our fear, maybe anger, whatever you got going on, we exhale it and breathe in God's promises and presence. Or you can do it reversed. You breathe in God's promise and presence and exhale however you want to breathe. You just do it. But you exhale the bad, you inhale the good. And sometimes, you know, you have to do it in quick, forceful, systematic breaths because it's tough. Okay? But finally, the class taught us how to focus. They teach the mother to find a focal point and concentrate on it when the pains come. The Bible teaches us to have a focal point. What's the focal point, folks? Jesus. And so when you just go, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There's some tribulation. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God is trying to have a baby. And it's the church. It's us. And there's pain involved. But revelation guides us through it. The question is, are we willing to trust him in the, in the process? Amen? Let's all be standing for a closing word of prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much that you're bigger than us. I thank you. You've given us reality checks in the Bible. The Bible's not fluff. And the Bible's about real life and real people. But Father, I'm so thankful that your love, your goodness, your grace, your forgiveness, your provisions, your protections is way greater than all the other bad stuff. And may we put our faith in that and trust in that and experience it so that we may, that we may reflect it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.